Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a fantastic show for you today. I'm thrilled to have with me two wonderful practitioners and researchers, Dr. Lorenzo Berra, who's an anesthesia and critical care attending and the medical director for respiratory care at Massachusetts General Hospital, and also Dr. Roberta Santiago, who is an MD-PhD research fellow and is trained in pulmonary and critical care medicine and in respiratory therapy, also working uh, with Dr. Barra at MGH on some really fascinating research. And what we're going to talk about today is how the increasing rate of obesity in our country has really changed the way we need to think about setting our vents in both the operating room and the ICU so that we're really tailoring our ventilation to our patient population And we'll get into a little bit of why maybe we're not doing that with our traditional methods and some better ways that these fantastic folks have shown uh, can really make a difference. So welcome, uh, Lorenzo and Roberta, to the show. Thank you, Jed. Thank you, Jed. So why don't we start a little bit uh, talking just about the two of you. So if you could each tell me a little bit about you, how did you get where you are, and and what does your career look like? You want to start? Okay, um, so I, I'm from Brazil, and I started my training in Brazil, internal medicine and pulmonary. And by the end of my residency, I was missing something else, and I had this uh, rotation in a research center in another state, in Sao Paulo. And there I get the opportunity to work and do my PhD with Professor Marcelo Mato. And uh, uh, after this contact there, I get to know Lorenzo and Robert Kazmarek here in the U.S. and end up coming here to do my uh, postdoctorate fellowship. Fantastic. And just tell me, because it's so interesting, what, t- tell a little bit about what made you decide to do the respiratory therapy training. That's a little unusual, but very neat. So uh, when I got here and we started doing um, research in in critical care and mechanical ventilation and also all the interaction I had with Bob Kazmarek 
was really uh, we discussed and we got to this idea that would be nice to integrate the two trainings. So I see the, like both sides of uh, respiratory diseases and respiratory care. So I end up going through the training here and uh, I hope it can be a bridge between the two, two areas. Two Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And Lorenzo, how about you? Roberta always strikes me for uh, her accomplishments. So, so, <laughs> uh, it's it's great to have uh, uh, research fellows that know more than than I do. So it's uh, really I'm learning always. So absolutely, uh, I'm um, uh, as you can tell, I have a, a, a kind of great accent, which is from <laughs> from Italy. And so I come from Italy, and uh, I did my. I finished my residency and um, and uh, with my mentor at that time, uh, he asked me if I was interested in doing research, which I was. Uh, I did a thesis on uh, ARDS and acute lung injury. And so he sent me and proposed to go to NIH. So I did. I went to Bethesda in a laboratory in pulmonary critical care medicine branch that was directed by Dr. Kolobov. Uh, and he really introduced me to the world of research, so animal uh, laboratory research. And um, I spent there three years and a half at NHLBI. And then after that, I, I decided to continue research uh, in clinical translational research here in the U.S. So I trained uh, in anesthesia and critical care here at MGH, and I remained in the staff. I met uh, wonderful teachers uh, all along uh, with, uh, um, that supported me with Dr. Zapon and Dr. Katzmarek. And so that I, uh, as many of you and uh, of us know that he just passed away, but he has been a great supporter and, uh, and teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fantastic. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in, in this specific topic of personalized ventilation. You gave a great talk for us at Hopkins, and I remember you telling a story of kind of some things you noticed during your training that raised questions in your head that you then kind of pushed you. But tell, tell us that story. Yeah, so I, I mentioned you that, that uh, uh, I was interested in uh, acute lung injury and the ARDS, and what I noticed was that, uh, in, uh, and that was my interest, so I was really looking after patients with ARDS, trying to, to manage uh, their, uh, their uh, ventilation and their therapies. What, what I noticed was that uh, many patients that were obese in the ICU end up to be defined and labeled as uh, patients with ARDS. However, uh, it was very difficult, and, and the, the other thing that I noticed is that these patients end up with tracheostomies. They were staying for a very long period of time in the ICU, and it started to strike me the difference with which we treated patients in the operating room, uh, positioning, uh, trying to avoid opioids, higher uh, pressures, use of BiPAP or CPAP post-op, from uh, instead the patients that were treated uh, in the ICU with obesity, usually uh, just at 30 degrees or flat uh, and uh, with uh, lower pressures and airway pressures and not really much use of a CPAP post-extubation. So that raised questions uh, um, to me that were 
quite important and uh, trying to understand what is, was the physiology that we missed uh, or that uh, there was uh, something that clearly we were not uh, uh, really uh, understanding. And, and uh, I understood that, that in order to, to learn that, I had to, to go deep in the physiology pathways and uh, trying to understand uh, a little bit more. Of and so that's why I found uh, uh, on one side, uh, Bob Katzmark that really helped me and uh, uh, allowing uh, really to, to, to understand a little bit more. And as well as uh, I reach out to uh, Marcelo Amato in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, where he actually was uh, working on a personalized uh, ventilation. And so I said, I need to learn. So, uh, so I, and I went back in a sense uh, at school uh, during my, my first year of uh, a fellowship and then as a first years of a, of a ICO attending. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting. You basically noticed that the outcomes were worse for these obese patients and that we weren't, you know, there was a difference in practice between how we thought about it in the OR and how we thought about it in the ICU. And that didn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, I think this is so often the story with people who really have a, that gift for asking these research questions is you notice something and then you, go beyond just noticing it and start thinking, okay, why would that be? Let me delve into that and see where it takes me. Um, and, and I think that's really nice to hear. So we've got this question, right? And, and I'll say when I, it wasn't that long ago that I was a trainee and I think, you know, all you really did back then was put people on five a peep, right? I mean, for, for us, even in the OR, it was just five a peep. That was, in, in fact, the debate maybe was whether you needed peep, and if you did, then five was like the answer, right? So why is that not right? Why is, why is it not, why, can't, why should we not just put everybody on five a peep, park it there and, and say, we've done our job, we've provided peep? So, and e either of you, yeah, Roberta, please. So uh, one thing that we, we always discuss about these fixed values of peep is that we end up being having like two levels. One is the same patient and uh, within a period of time, and the other one is between different patients. So an example from the anesthesia side was published by Pereira and Amato in Brazil, uh, was from Brazil, published on anesthesiologists that they checked um, PIP settings and they realized that different patients uh, had each patient, they had a specific PIP level when they did recruitment maneuvers and individualized uh, PIP settings, and um, they have less post surgical atelectasis measured by CT. So, this is like each patient uh, required different PIP level. You know, Jed, this is a great question, also because make me realize that uh, when we, uh, the trials that have been performed in the operating room usually they compare one PEEP level versus a different one. But reality is that the operating room is very dynamic. The same patient, if you measure uh, best PEEP at the beginning of the surgery after intubation in the supine position, certainly the physiology will be different when the same patient is going to be in laparoscopic procedures, in head down, Trendelenburg position, and after receiving maybe five, six liters of uh, uh, fluids or blood transfusions with an inflammation state. So I think that <clears throat> we need to appreciate also the dynamic changes 
within the same patient. So it's not only that one fits all uh, for every patient, but also the same patient has a change. You know, in ICU, we are a little bit lucky here uh, because uh, in a sense we receive, uh, we can change, there are changes. I'm not saying there aren't, uh, but the, the changes usually are um, over time. In it. Like if you check best people, best ventilation in one day and the next day, probably is going to be close to be the same. But in the operating room, instead, is I learned by by actually now by going more often in the operating room and to titrate ventilation in the in the operating room. That's much more different. It's much more dynamic. And I don't think we have an appreciation of that. Right. Yeah. So that's so interesting. And I think you mentioned two really important things or several really important things. So one, Lorenzo, is that, yes, this isn't just about one individual patient being different from another, but the differences that happen during surgery, especially if you're going to be doing laparoscopic surgery and steep Trendelenburg position, that's very different. And we don't do those things. We don't insufflate abdomens in the ICU. We don't usually put people in Trendelenburg unless we're putting a central line in. And so those are much less common. So I think that's really key to notice too. And then Roberta, what you said is that, you know, and you cited that study, that what we have is the reason we use PEEP, right, is to prevent atelectasis. And so there's evidence now to say that more PEEP, at least for certain patients and in certain situations, will lead to less atelectasis. And so that's that's kind of, you know, what we're shooting for and why five of PEEP might might work in somebody, but not necessarily someone else. And we'll get into the dynamics of of how obesity affects this in a minute. But I want to talk about just some nomenclature because I think that'll be important as we go through. So can you, um, either one of you, take us through a couple of these terms that I'm sure people have heard but may not have a great idea for. So let's start with plateau pressure. What is it? And and the other question I'll ask is when I was training, that was kind of all we cared about. You know, you had a patient with ARDS and the question was just what's their plateau pressure? And if you got it below 30, you were happy. And now that's not as quite as simple, right? But but what is it? What is plateau pressure? So um, the plateau pressure is specifically a measurement that we do during an inspiratory pause. So in the you do that inspiratory hold, like quick inspiratory hold, and it, meaning there is no flow at that moment, and then is the, uh, and then you have this measurement, right, of plateau pressure. It's interesting that you're saying that it's not just one single number, because it's just like when we see blood pressure. We have the systolic, diastolic, the mean, so you have to combine other settings to understand. Right. So we can, yeah, so one, this first one will be like the plateau pressure. And what, what do we think that signifies? So we get this pressure, you get a full inspiration, you hold it so that the, the ventilator does not let the patient exhale that air, and then you get a number. And what does that tell? What is it representing? The idea is to get as close as possible to the alveolar pressure, so the pressure that is really happening at the alveolar level, that we cannot measure it easily. So it's the, uh, at the bedside, the closest that we can get to what is being delivered to the Okay. And that's as opposed to peak pressure, which is the highest pressure as that you reach as you're putting air in. And, you know, you could imagine a situation where you've got a tube that's kinked or clogged. And so it's going to take a lot of pressure to get air past that kink. So the peak pressure is going to be quite high. But once you stop moving the air, 
you'll just, that'll all settle down and you'll see what you'll be left with is would be presumably a much lower plateau pressure, which is what's in the alveoli as opposed to the pressure it took to push air through that kink in a tube, right? So the peak pressure represents that resistance you have to get in and the plateau pressure represents what the alveoli are actually seeing is to the best we can know. You know, the, that's very important because many times in the operating room, especially with the early on ventilators, we were unable to measure uh, plateau pressures because there was uh, no option to measure mm-hmm. it. And to, so this, uh, this concept has been a, a little bit uh, confused. So that's very important to make a difference between the peak pressure and plateau pressure. Uh, and also because in the operating room, many times we see patients to be reactive airway disease after intubation and so on. So it's very important to differentiate the resistivity and the resistance uh, versus the actual pressure in the alveolar space, uh, which is the plateau pressure. Okay, great. What about driving pressure? So this, I, I don't think I heard this term as a trainee. Now this is you know talked about quite a lot. What is driving pressure? So the, the driving pressure, by definition, is the plateau pressure minus the total PIP. And uh, it's uh, an idea of applied now of the tidal compliance. The, what is uh, really that area of the lung is really like ventilating and how compliant is that, that lung, that patient. Okay, so it's the amount of pressure above the PEEP that you're needing to get the tidal volume in that you're trying to get in. And why is that significant? Why do we, you know, why, why, do, why is it better or is it better to look at driving pressure compared to just plateau pressure? So it's very important because, uh, first, first of all, I want to also mention what uh, Roberta was just saying right now, that uh, the measurements is over total PEEP. And the total positive and the expiratory pressure needs to be measured at the end of an expiratory pause. Because sometimes we have patients that have a, a, what we call it auto-peep or intrinsic peep mm-hmm. or uh, occulted peep that we cannot measure. But basically, it's a, a pressure within the, the lungs that we don't set on the ventilator. So... It's very important that we don't make another possible mistake, which is a, a plateau pressure minus the set peak. That is a, a, that might lead to a mistake in the measurement of the driving pressure. So needs to be done a second pause at the end of exhalation. And if the, uh, the ventilator reads the same and expiratory pressure of the set PEEP, it means that there is no auto PEEP. Yeah. And uh, instead, uh, if there is a, a now, instead there is an increase in end expiratory pressure, we will use that level of end expiratory pressure to calculate the driving pressure. Great. Okay. So we talked about an end in and a pause at end inhalation to measure plateau pressure, and then a pause at end expiration to measure total PEEP, which you very importantly point out may or may not be what's set on the vent. It, it should never be less than what's set on the vent, but it might be more. Exactly. Um, okay, great. And so that's how we get driving pressure. We do plateau pressure minus total PEEP. And why would we ever look at that? Why is that better than just looking at plateau pressure? 
so what clinically speaking, what was proven that these first is an idea, again, it's hard to measure directly in the alveoli what is going on. So the driving pressure is an idea that we can have how much air is really passing through the the lungs and through the alveoli is uh, at the bedside, something that we can do uh, easily. And uh, clinically was correlated higher values of plateau pressure, uh, about 14 was correlated, um, were correlated with a higher mortality. So higher levels of driving pressure or plateau pressure? Uh, driving pressure. Driving pressure. Okay. So driving pressure above 14 correlates with higher mortality. And, and that's because the PEEP, to, to look just at plateau pressure includes PEEP. So you could have someone on, you know, 20 of PEEP and that's only taking, you know, 11 of pressure, which is not a lot to get a volume in. And yet their, their, you know, plateau pressure is going to be above 30 and that might worry somebody, but that doesn't feel right because a lot of that is the PEEP. So driving pressure gets rid of that concept and just asks how much pressure is it taking to drive the, vet, the, the tidal volume? Right. And that's because we, we, we think of PEEP to some extent as protective. So we don't really want to take that into account when we're thinking about the, the, uh, the plateau pressure being too high. So that's, I mean, I don't, that's not a scientific way to think about it, but I think about it as it's a way to get around that. Right. It's a way to look at how much pressure it's taking to actually drive the breath in. Yes, and also because it allows us to understand that it's not only an absolute value yes. that is actually injurious to the lung. Instead, it's the elastic properties that are um, tested at that level of positive pressure. So, in fact, the uh, work that Roberta was mentioning that appeared on the New England Journal of Medicine from Amato's group was uh, looking at all the trials that have been done on ARDS patients and then uh, putting all the data together from those trials, what they found was that, in fact, the level of PEEP, the absolute level of PEEP, is, does not correlate with mortality. But what correlates with mortality is the driving pressure. So at 6 cc per kilo in a patient with ARDS, what is the driving pressure, so the elastic properties of the lung at that level of tidal volume? And that is if it is very uncompliant and therefore the driving pressure higher, then that unfortunately those patients are more susceptible to die than patients instead with lower levels of driving pressure, irrespective to the plateau pressure or to the PEEP. Great. Okay. So that's really important. We're going to come back to that, but let's just do a couple other definitions. So people hear sometimes about pleural pressure. What do we mean when we say pleural pressure? So pleural pressure is the pressure that surrounds the lungs. So it's in the, in the, in the, it's in the, the pleural space. Unfortunately, we can't really measure. We don't want to go in the pleural space with a needle or anything like that. So, so we needed to use a surrogates. And, uh, and the surrogates that we use, uh, the best at least that has been uh, um, used in the past and uh, recently, uh, it's a esophageal manometry. And that is uh, uh, obtained by inserting an esophageal catheter in the lower third of the esophagus. 
and uh, and over and and this is the best uh, um, measurement that we have uh, to estimate the pleural pressure. Remind you, again, there is a, as a good studies back from John West uh, and so forth, we, there is always a gradient of, of pleural pressure. With esophageal manometry, we measure one, pla- one uh, uh, place, uh, I mean, right. the, the in, inside the, ch- the chest cavity. So, what we measure with the esophageal manometry is is at the third lower third of the esophagus. It's important because it allows us to calculate and to estimate uh, transpulmonary pressures. Yeah, and tell tell me what that is. So transpulmonary pressures, transpulmonary pressures, uh, it's uh, really the uh, pressure distending the alveoli. So it is by definition airway pressure or alveolar pressure, so the pressure inside the alveoli, minus the pressure outside the alveoli, which is pleural pressure. So how do we calculate the bedside? We need to use a surrogate, as we said before, at the end of the exhalation and the end of the inspiration, we measure airway pressure and we can estimate that that is the alveolar pressure. And uh, with a, an esophageal catheter, at the same time of the inspiratory pause and the expiratory pause, we can measure and we can, as a surrogate, the end expiratory pleural pressure and the end expiratory uh, inspiratory pleural pressure. So by the difference between airways pressure and pleural pressure at the two pauses, we can measure the transpulmonary pressure at the end of inspiration and the transpulmonary pressure at the end of exhalation. They give us, these two values are, they give us two different, they, they have a, two different meaning, at least in my mind. At the end of transpulmonary and expiratory transpulmonary pressure it tells us about uh, um, what is the pressure <coughs> across that alveoli and uh, if uh, the alveoli is at risk of uh, atelectasis or not. A negative value of transpulmonary pressure it means that the esophageal uh, the pleural pressure is higher than alveoli and therefore the, the, those alveoli are susceptible to atelectasis. So in a, a study by Loring and Talmor, uh, they, they proposed to maintain positive end expiratory pressure at zero or above zero of end, tra, end transpulmonary pressure. The end inspiratory pressure or end, uh, end inspiratory or transpulmonary pressure tells us about instead the distending uh, pressure at the end of inspiration, and therefore it tells us a little bit about the possible injury that we can have at the level of the alveoli. Now, there is not a value uh, that has been shown uh, above which uh, injury uh, uh, occurs. However, we can imagine that if uh, a normal uh, person uh, with normal lungs is inspiring spontaneously at the end of inspiration one can reach about 10, 15 uh, maximum 20 of a transpulmonary pressure 
we don't, maybe we don't want to go above those values. Okay. So this is really fascinating. And is it fair to say that if we could easily measure a true transpulmonary pressure, that that's all we would care about? Because it actually is telling us what the lung is experiencing as opposed to even driving pressure, which as you said, is, a, is good. But if you knew your driving pressure was, you know, 20, but you knew your transpulmonary pressure was five, maybe you don't care about that driving pressure. But tell me, is that wrong or is, is that right? Exactly no, right. That's exactly, yes. Ideally, okay. in the ideal world, yes, in the if, perfect world. <laughs> if there was a, a possibility to measure transpulmonary pressure at every level of, of the lung slice or uh, alveoli, uh, that would be the idea. However, as uh, we mentioned before and discussed, is there is no such a, such a monitoring uh, available. We have a, a one level, so it's of a germanometry, but that doesn't really tell us about the entire or the regional transpulmonary pressure at different level of the lungs. Must is say, there any way? Sorry, go ahead, Lorenzo. No, no. I must say that also that that uh, the, the the that leads also to a, a concept uh, uh, why the transpulmonary pressure are different uh, in different regions of the lungs. I mean, in healthy volunteers, they. In, in healthy patients, healthy lungs, this is a very, it exists, but uh, it is within the physiological uh, numbers, so we, in fact, don't really care. But in those patients with inflammation and, uh, in fact, edema, these uh, values may differ, differ a lot. So that's been... Uh, um, uh, we use uh, like a, this name, superimposed pressure, which is the pressure that is uh, due to uh, hydrostatic, uh, the hydrostatic pressure due to inflammation uh, of, of the lung. And so this, this uh, causes uh, really a different uh, levels of transpulmonary pressures across the lung in, in diseased patients. Okay. I was going to ask, you know, in a healthy patient without pulmonary edema, you know, just having surgery, do we have any idea how much transpulmonary pressure changes, you know, from the different zones of the lung, different regional areas of the lung? Yeah, it changes by changes of a pleural pressure. So we know early studies in the 70s in animal model um, that the, the pleural pressure varies from minus two centimeters of water to plus seven centimeters of water in the, depending on whether you are in the dependent or non-dependent region of the lungs. And so variations are similar on the, with the transpulmonary pressure. As airway pressure in the normal lungs will be similar throughout. Okay. Atmospheric pressure. Right. And do we know that, let's say you take a healthy person and you insufflate their abdomen and put them in Trendelenburg position. Do we know the, the, and I know it's not going to be exact, but do we know the, how much are we talking about an increase in that plural pressure with the, let's take a non-obese person, just a, a healthy, normal weight person. And you put them in a insufflated abdomen, steep Trendelenburg, uh, you know, for a prostatectomy or something like that. How much does the plural pressure increase about? 
We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us, and we'll be back with Dr. Barra's answer to that question. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, we were talking about how much plural pressure might change with things like Trendelenburg position and with insufflation of the abdomen. Yeah, very good question. Again, I think it's very important to know that the changes depend also not only the absolute values of, for example, insufflation of the abdomen in terms of pressure, but depends also the geometry of the chest wall cavity. And therefore... You can imagine that a patient has been measured anyway, just to go straight to your questions, it can vary from 5 to 15 centimeters of water pressure. Um, but again, you cannot predict uh, the value of changes in, uh, in uh, pleural pressure. Um, I remind you also that it's very important to think about that in a patient with pneumoperitoneum, uh, 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 what is going to change uh, really is the chest wall compliance um, because we are going to place the chest wall to a different uh, level of uh, um, 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 elastance prop the elastance properties of the chest wall will vary uh, rather than actually the lung by them the lungs itself so they change the respiratory compliance that we see on the ventilator in the anesthesia machines are going they reflect the change in the chest wall compliance. Okay. So we're going to get an increase in that pleural pressure due to this decrease in chest wall compliance, but it's hard to predict exactly how much. And that's from the insufflation and the Trendelenburg position. And then when we what happens when we add obesity onto this? How what role does that play? Because we kind of started this whole discussion by saying we have quite a uh, an, uh, an impressive um, and unfortunate increase in obesity and, and significant obesity in this country over the past, you know, 30 years. And now there's a, I, you showed a graph, it's quite impressive. I think many, many states have uh, obesity rates above 30, 35%. So a lot of patients are coming in either obese or morbidly obese with, with really extreme obesity. What difference does that make? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And also, it's important to think that these are very different conditions. So let me just start by maybe just to point out three major changes in respiratory physiology in obesity. The first that I think of is that in the... In patients with obesity, there is a, a, an increase in uh, pleural pressure, and that's due to the increase also of uh, gastric pressure. This has been shown uh, uh, clearly by a study from uh, Loring uh, Group uh, from the Beth Israel, uh, uh, where they measure the gastric pressure and uh, esophageal pressures in uh, anesthesia, in uh, supine position in patients, And uh, what they found was that, in fact, the increase in BMI correlated with an increase in gastric and esophageal pressure. So what happens uh, if the absolute values of esophageal pressure or, or pleural pressure increased? The consequences are at two levels. One is that the uh, volumes, lung volumes, are decreased. In fact... Uh, Uh, patients with a high BMI uh, may breathe at uh, the tidal ventilation is very close to the residual volume. So the FRC, the functional residual capacity in these patients is reduced. That's the reason also, as we anesthesiologists, when we need to intubate a patient with a, a very high BMI, we all notice that the level of uh, desaturation is very fast. And that's the reason, because there is no, the FRC is, is very little. So, and then uh, one more important change is that the increase in the pleural pressure does not only affect lung volumes and alveoli, but also airways. So that leads to occlusion, airways occlusion. It's uh, very common to see that in patients uh, in, with obesity in the, in the operating room, if you test for airways occlusion, you may notice that there is a, a level in which there is a, really an autopeep. So there is a, a closure, airway closure at low volumes. So it's a little bit different from what we see in uh, asthmatic patients. This is a, a airways occlusion at low volumes. Um, so the, I think these are the three mechanisms that I keep in mind in terms of when I, I approach physiological changes uh, in, uh, that I keep in mind when I approach uh, patients with obesity. Okay. So, and then is it fair to say that since these patients at baseline have higher pleural pressures, it's more likely, though I, I know it's not perfectly predictive, that when you insufflate their abdomens and put them in steep Trendelenburg, you're going to have a, a higher pleural pressure than you would have if they were not obese. Yeah, that's a very good point. So what happens? There are two different uh, mechanisms there, right? So one is that uh, patients with obesity have a higher baseline levels of uh, pleural pressure. But the second now, not only the lungs are more susceptible to atelectasis, but now we also change the, prop, the elastic property of the chest wall. So now you have 
if you see um, uh, I, I will uh, um, uh, there is a nice uh, paper that just came out from uh, Florio on on chest where basically what he did was measuring uh, pleural pressures and esophageal pressure in spontaneous breathing uh, patients um, volunteers and what he noticed was that in fact the high level of pleural pressures in order to a patient with obesity in order to breathe has to actually develop large swings of pleural pressure and that again you one could imagine that now you have a patient that is in anesthesia room in and the pneumoperitoneum so now you need to have a very large swing of pleural pressure in order to deliver a tidal volume in addition to the increased pressure. So you have two phenomenon at the same time. Right. Okay. So it's going to be even harder to get uh, a reasonable volume in and harder really translates into higher pressure, right? You're going to have to push harder. Yes. So there are two things. One is that there is a need of end expiratory pressure that is higher. And the second is that you are going to need a higher driving pressure because you need to move now a chest wall that is becoming non-compliant. So there are the two phenomenon at the same time. So the increase in driving pressure that we see on the ventilator is due to the changes in the chest wall compliance, but the increase in the PEEP level that are, are required to maintain volumes at the end of exhalation. So there are these two phenomena that occur. Right. And they're much more prone, as you said, to airway and alveolar collapse because of all this pressure. So, and when we think of countering collapse, we think about PEEP. We, that's how we kind of started this conversation. So how, let's say that we want to figure out what's the, what's the ideal PEEP for you know, this, we've got an obese patient, they're having a laparoscopic, Trendelenburg, you know, prostatectomy or hysterectomy. And we want to figure out what PEEP should we use? It's probably not five. <laughs> so how do we figure out what it is? Very good question. So, so, um, of course, we, we use uh, lots of uh, uh, different uh, uh, methods uh, in the ICU where maybe we have uh, more time to uh, to perfect the ventilation. Uh, in the operating room, I would suggest uh, really to use uh, um, driving pressures because uh, it is uh, really the best uh, um, value that we have to determine at that level of PEEP what is the best elastic property of the entire chest wall or in the entire ch respiratory system. So we take... Uh, the respiratory system as one, whether is the lung that is changing or whether there is the chest wall, the compliance that is changing. But I know at least the bedside that that is the best um, elastic properties of the entire system. So that's what I would do. Um, let's say that I have a patient that I I started the procedure, I intubate and start the ventilation. Um, and uh, and then I, the patient, the abdomen is insufflated and then placed in Trendelenburg position, I would start going from every five centimeter of water in step 
step up uh, uh, manner and I will determine maintaining the same tidal volume, what is the best uh, driving, the lowest driving pressures that I can reach. And I will keep that level of pressure during the period in which the patient remains in the same position with the same insufflation pressure. Okay, so what you've described is an incremental PEEP trial, right? Where you're going to take, you might start at five, then you're going to go up to 10 and you're going to see what happens with your driving pressure. And if your driving pressure went down, you'll go up another five on your PEEP. And if your driving pressure went down again, you'll go up another five. And if your driving pressure starts to go up, now you know you've gone too far and you'll back up, right? The other way to do that might be a decremental PEEP trial, right? Where you start high and then come down. Is there is yeah. is one better? Yeah, I think that generally speaking and physiologically, the decremental PEEP trial makes much more sense because you are actually taking in account the hysteresis of the lung and therefore the actual um, distending, again, uh, distending elastic properties of the lungs. Um, in healthy lungs, uh, the hysteresis is uh, small. It, so um, normally, uh, there is not much changes between inspiration and, and exhalation. However, it, very different uh, is when a patient is acute lung injury or ARDS. So in the operating room uh, for uh, reasons that are timing and, uh, and uh, also hemodynamics, uh, I, would, uh, I would start, I would suggest to use the uh, inspiratory, I mean, the, to, to do the, the um, uh, very uh, step, step up, really, PIP. In, yeah. the, uh, in the ICU, I would use the more the decremental PIP trial, so I will recruit the lungs first. So to and how do you do that, Lorenzo? How, how high, for recruitment breath, how high do you go for how long? I do. So recruitment maneuver in the ICU, I, I'm being very careful. I'm not doing the 40 centimeter that sometimes we use in the operating room. I use the uh, pressure control ventilation. I set the ventilator at the same level of PEEP that the patient is on. Let's say the patient is on 12 centimeter of PEEP at 6 cc per kilo in volume control ventilation. What I do is I'm starting from 12. I switch to pressure control and I use 10 or 15 of driving pressure, depending on the, what is the tidal volume that I, I, I reach. And then I go up 5 centimeter, 5 to five centimeter um, of water every step with leaving at, at one to one inspiratory time, expiratory time with a, a prolonged inspiration at two, 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 two seconds. So uh, I let the patient breathe five breaths at that level of PEEP and then I increase five centimeters up to maximum plateau pressure of 40 centimeter of water. And then from that, I switched to volume control ventilation and I started to go down with a pressures, with a PEEP, starting from usually 25 centimeter of water, 24, depending on how much elastic is the, the lung. I will not use higher pressure than 40 anyway, plateau. And I will check what is the best compliance, so the best driving pressure uh, that I that I I can find 
going uh, down uh, with the peak. That, so that's the decremental peak trial. Again, very important uh, while we do these procedures, it's uh, hemodynamics. So we will try not to uh, uh, disengage lungs and heart and try to keep them always together. And that's why we always use also in ICU when we have more time, uh, um, echo, uh, we do transthoracic echocardiography or we, in, in, in any way, we continue monitor hemodynamics. Okay. So yeah, hemodynamics obviously is super important because, and I think people will know this, but high levels of PEEP can impede venous return. And of course, some patients are not going to be able to tolerate that. I find that in the operating room in a steep Trendelenburg, gravity is your friend, right? It's really hard to stop gravity from returning blood to the heart when a patient is at, you know, a, a 75 degree angle with their head down, right? I mean, you'd have to use a lot of PEEP to prevent the blood from getting back to the heart, right? Yeah. And then there is also the effect of uh, the, uh, there is a trend position. And then uh, these patients, uh, many of them also, they are uh, with uh, a pneumoperitoneum. So then uh, there are multiple factors for which right. these patients will, in fact, usually we have the opposite problem with hypertension, dealing with hypertension. In this right. Case. So, right. Okay. So a couple questions. I had a resident ask me once, okay, you're not worried about um, the blood coming back to the heart, but what about the blood leaving the brain? Do we worry at all about venous congestion in the brain if we have high PEEP and they're in Trendelenburg? Is that ever, has that ever been described or do we worry about that at all? So very good question. And uh, in fact, it's, uh, I mean, once also, I mean, can experience and can see that there is like encouragement of the jo- external jugular veins. Uh, and uh, I, I would say that uh, certainly this is a, a, a concern. Uh, at the same time, one, you, one you, sh- you should think also that uh, by increasing uh, airway pressure, we don't increase the total amount of pressures because what we do is we counterbalance the increased pleural pressure. And therefore, in fact, this pressure, as long as it's lower, is not, is not um, so high to really uh, having, having a, a, a hemodynamic effect, in fact. Uh, so you actually just the counterbalance the increase the pleural pressure. And you'll be always below, but never higher than that. So then, then it, doesn't, it doesn't really translate in an increase in the CVP. But it's a beautiful question. I think that the, your resident has a wonderful insight that should be followed and should be explored more. Yeah, great. Thank you. And, and so that's really important is that by increasing the pressure in the airways, we're just countering the pressure squeezing in on them, that pleural pressure. And as long as we're just meeting that to keep them open, we're not actually increasing the CVP. And that's really important. So it should not affect the drainage from the brain. Now, being in Trendelenburg can, can affect it, but they're going to be in Trendelenburg whether we use high PEEP or not, right? So that's, that's kind of already there. And then the other question is, what do you say to you know, I, I always tell my residents, you know, if we have a patient like this and we do a, a you know, an incremental PEEP trial and we say, oh, okay, our best driving pressure here is at, you know, um, a PEEP of 22. And so our peak pressure, which of course the ventilator, that's what you see, right? You see the peak pressure blaring at you and the peak pressure is 40. And I tell them, you know, 
if I leave and another attending comes in, they might abs- like lose their mind, right? And say, what are you doing? You've got a peak pressure of 40. You're going to blow this patient's lungs up. But we, we don't think that's true, right? And so tell me why. Why do we think that in this patient who we've done this with, it's safe to have, if we've found that the ideal driving pressure is, as I said, let's just say, uh, is with a PEEP of 22, and that gives us a peak pressure of 40, why, do, why are we not worried about damage to the lungs? Um, because actually, uh, the what is really going through the lungs will be related to the to the plateau pressure, and um, that pressure is not being applied actually across the, the whole the whole lung, and it's just shifted up because of the the plateau. Yes, it's just shifted up, and I have to check also like airway or if there is any other. Um, like obstruction or kink or something else that could be increasing the resistance in, the, in that, but just the, having a normal plateau pressure and a, a, a good driving pressure, it, the area like the alveolar area and the what is going across the alveolar is fine. It's it's protected, I guess. <laughs> you know, Jed. Also, the other thing is that uh, um, we said uh, we discussed uh, now. Uh, a little bit about uh, uh, advanced monitoring of a respiratory system. I think that there are patients um, that are at higher risk uh, of possible respiratory and cardiopulmonary complications. And in those patients, I believe that using uh, esophageal manometry in the operating room can be done, and it's not that difficult. Um, in fact, uh, I mean, uh, you, uh, all of us, most of our patients require an orogastric tube, um, and the esophageal manometry uh, can, there are catheters that are actually within, that they are, um, within the, the gastric tube. So it's, uh, uh, and uh, you can actually easily uh, monitor transpulmonary pressure by connecting a CVP monitor at the beds at the, at the your monitor in the operating room so it's not that difficult and I think that and the reason why I'm saying that is exactly what you were uh, asking because what we read on the ventilator we don't know if it is the pressure that we read is applied totally to the alveoli or to the chest wall and so the changes in uh, in in the dynamic of the, of the compliance of the chest wall will influence the airway pressure that we read. But if the, also the pleural pressure is changed, then you know that that kind of pressure that you read on the ventilator is actually counteracting only the chest wall, is not, tra- does not translate to a yeah. distinctive uh, pressure of the of the alveolar space. It's like they, it's like that pressure they're applying is dissipated, right? It's like being dissipated to overcome the the, the chest wall and counteract the pleural pressure. So it's not actually go, going through the 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 distending pressure across the alveoli itself. It's just right. dissipated to hold the the other structures. Right. I, I tell my residents, you know, imagine if I had them blow as hard as they could into a balloon, eventually that balloon would explode. But if they took that same balloon and put it in a metal box and blew into it, it would never explode, right? No matter how much pressure they put into it. And that's kind of the idea of what you're saying is that it, the, we look at 
peak and plateau pressure because it's easy to measure, but it doesn't actually give us the information we want, which is what's the distending pressure on the alveolus. And to know that, we have to know what's pressing in from the outside. Because if that alveolus is in a metal box, then that, pre- that peak and plateau pressure don't matter. And so that's, that's the chest wall that you're talking about, right? So we, we kind of, but we don't have an easy way. Now you're saying you can in the operating room. And I bet in the future, this will become more and more common to measure esophageal pressure. So let me ask you this. If you were doing that, if you were measuring esophageal pressure in the operating room, how would you use that to find your ideal peak? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I, think, uh, I think, again, uh, just to go again uh, to, to, your, to your point is that I would not use, again, pleural pressure for all and esophageal manometry for all patients. But right. really, the case that we made, like the patients with a high BMI, we had the patients with 70 of BMI a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that had a gastric uh, sleeve, therefore it was a, a pneumoperitoneum uh, in head, head down position plus, uh, plus obesity. In, those, in that patient, we use, in fact, tra- uh, transpulmonary pressures with esophageal manometry, and also we add electric impedance tomography that help us a little bit to understand the regional ventilation. And um, I introduced a new, a new met- method, uh, but the reason why I'm doing that is because uh, uh, what we talk until now is uh, absolute values of pressures. And as we said, there is a real gradient. What uh, electric impedance tomography helps us is uh, by um, seeing really it's a dynamic, it's an, a radiation-free um, uh, impedance signal that is uh, going through the through the uh, chest, and the only changes in impedance during uh, ventilation is in fact air. So what you are going to see at the bedside is a distribution of ventilation in the regional area of the lungs, and so you actually can appreciate how, for example, uh, Trendelenburg or uh, pneumoperitoneum will influence will actually matter during the ventilation that you that you give so what i i think is that uh, transpulmonary pressure and esophageal manometry will help you to differentiate whether uh, you are actually ventilating your your pressure that you are using on the ventilator is uh, dissipated against the chest wall or the lungs so let's say that your driving pressure is 20 centimeter of water. So you are a 10 centimeter of water peep and your plateau pressure is 30, let's say even 35 centimeter of water. So 25 centimeter of driving pressure, very high. Right. So then you have a, 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 an esophageal manometry. And then now you see that your esophageal pressure is 10 at the end of exhalation and your plateau uh, at Esophageal, esophageal plateau pressure is uh, about 20. So the actual distending transpulmonary pressure here in this case is only five centimeter of water, which is perfectly normal. So those 25 centimeter of water are only dissipated to distend the chest wall. So it's perfectly physiological and one should not worry about it. Yes. Yep. Yeah, that sounds great. So it okay. seems to me like... The real distending pressure in this case will be protective, right? Of five, right. 
protective descending pressure, so not harming, not, not harmful. Right. So it seems like to measure ideal PEEP, we started by saying, you know, most people are not going to have an esophageal manometer. They're not going to have impedance tomography. And so in the operating room, what you can do is use driving pressure, as you said. Some ventilators will also show a compliance curve, so you can look at your compliance as you go either up or down, depending on how you're doing your PEEP. You can either walk it up and look for improved compliance, or you can walk it down and, and look for it the kind of ideal compliance, but how, those are, I think the ways to the kind of, uh, you know, poor man's ways to do it in the OR. Does that sound right? Yep. And then if you have, you know, the ability to use an esophageal balloon or impedance tomography, that's great. And I wanted to ask you about impedance tomography. So you mentioned how it measures ventilation and gives you an idea of regional ventilation. How about, um, perfusion? Can you also see perfusion so you can match them up? Oh, yes. So the, uh, the electrical impedance tomography is based to, uh, impedance is proportional to the resistance to electric current. So whatever is moving inside the chest can have a variation and that variation can be quantified by the impedance. So if we think about uh, electrical current, there is a higher resistance to electricity in the air. So when we have higher changes in impedance, we can combine that with ventilation. And when we have uh, fluids or consolidation, we have a lower resistance to, to the electricity. So combined with the heart rate and the respiratory rate, the electrical impedance information can be uh, divided into the perfusion and into uh, the blood, uh, the pulse variation and blood flow and the, com- the ventilation. So for, for that, we can have uh, an idea on how the blood is being distributed uh, between the lungs, so the pulmonary uh, perfusion. And we can use uh, hypertonic saline to facilitate it and it works as a contrast. So we have the, from the same chest uh, slice, we have the ventilation information the impedance related to the ventilation and the impedance related to the blood flow. So we can have this combination of ventilation and perfusion at the, the bedside just by identifying which uh, activity comes from where each activity is coming from. So we at the bedside, the maneuver to do that is, is, is simple. We have the ventilation measure, a stable ventilation, a paralyzed patient measured for a three to five breaths, and then we have to set some pre-apnea, and we can inject the hypertonic saline as a contrast, and then we stop the breathing. So whatever happens with the impedance will be perfusion. And then we have an idea where the uh, hypertonic saline is going, and then we can match where the air is going with where the perfusion is going. Yeah, that's so neat. That's great. Okay, so that's a, a more advanced way to kind of figure out Mm-hmm. total balance of uh, ventilation and perfusion. And you could, of course, increase your PEEP and see if that improved it or, or if it um, made it worse. So do we, what do we know about outcomes? If we do this stuff, if, we, you know, if, you, if you take people on five of PEEP or you take people on personalized PEEP uh, and you've done one of these methods, well, however it is you got there, you found out, okay, this is the ideal PEEP for this patient. Do we know that those patients have better outcomes in terms of things like mortality or pulmonary complications postoperatively? I think you mentioned right up front, Roberta, that we do know that they have less atelectasis. 
if we do this as opposed to just parking them at five a peep? Does do we know if that translates into better long term outcomes? Mm-hmm. So in this uh, paper that I mentioned in the beginning is like 40 patients is studied at one center and they have like less atelectasis when they individualize the, the peep. But from a broader like information, we, we don't have a difference in outcome, right? Um, so far. No trials. <laughs> yes, no trials. We are both mm-hmm. thinking that uh, maybe we should go, um, what we always discuss here in the lab about the clinical trials and uh, what the kind of physiological study that we do. And uh, I think that now we are at the level of thinking about safety and understanding, I think, the physiology of all these interventions. Yeah, so I think really that what Roberta uh, was saying is that there are no trials that have been performed on uh, individualized uh, um, titration of ventilation yet. Uh, I think that we have uh, in that phase of accumulating experience and uh, uh, learning what uh, actually best ventilation um, would like uh, would look like. So at the same time, I think that what we're learning is that uh, five centimeter of water or zero centimeter of water is not really in the best interest of our patients. Um, but again, I think that. Uh, uh, what we, we are what we discussed until now is really that we are learning um, by really doing these studies and the fact that we in, indeed we cannot really do a trial like they did for example for the artsnet like one one setting of ventilation versus a different setting of ventilation because the operating room I think it's much more dynamic so right. we really need to really learn. Uh, what is the best? And I guess the, the devices and the, and the um, measurements that we discussed, the transponary pressure, electric impedance tomography, and uh, hemodynamics, uh, they, need, they needed to be really worked out together. So in a multimodal, really, respiratory monitoring. And so not really just... Uh, um, uh, aiming to one value, for example, PF ratio, yeah. or for example, uh, plateau pressure, but instead we really needed to learn from the complexity of physiology. So that I think is where we are at, at in this moment. Right. And I, I think there was a trial not too long ago, right, that looked at like a set peep of maybe 12 versus a set peep of four or five and didn't show a difference. But as you say, that's not what we're talking about here, right? That's not personalized. That's just high versus low or not even that high. It's kind of sort of high versus low. Yeah. But what we're talking about that doesn't exist as far as I know, and you're saying you're agreeing is, you know, a real trial of using these methods to find a, a peep that's ideal at maybe even at different times of the surgery versus just parking it at five or 12 or anything, right? And also, if you think about obesity, um, it's not only the BMI, right? It depends also where the fat is distributed. So depending on where the fat is, if it's uh, like more abdominal or more like gynecoid, gynecoid, uh, it's different. And the impact on, on ventilation, on, on, on pleural pressure. So it's complicated to divide two levels of PIB and BMI ranges. Right. 
you know, the, uh, just uh, one one comment uh, about doing a, a trial like a low PEEP versus a medium higher PEEP. Um, I would say that is a, a, it, when trial like that, they become negative. Our reaction to that is, uh, you see, there is no reason why we should titrate or why should we use a different than what I always used. And it's kind of a defense mechanism. Right. The reality is that we all understand that if a patient, for example, uh, uses a nocturnal CPAP at 20 centimeter of water, the best value of a positive and expiratory pressure can't be five centimeters of water because that patient needs 20 centimeters of water when he sleeps and is right. continuously breathing. You can imagine that during mechanical ventilation and paralyzed, that is not going to be good. So I think we need to learn. And, and I think that's the, the beauty of still doing also physiological studies that really can help us to to really learn uh, and uh, find uh, what is the be- what how to build the trial right mm-hmm. how to build the trial it's a, a sequence of lots of physiological studies or biochemical or uh, uh, laboratory studies that lead us to that so i would say that now to run the trial in this very moment is a little bit too early yes, Fantastic. Well, this has been really great. Thank you both. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations, something the audience can check out. Um, Roberto, why don't we start with you? What would you recommend? So I would recommend uh, the book, Leon- Leonardo da Vinci, the biography from uh, written by Walter Isaacson. It's about uh, da Vinci's life, and it's really interesting because uh, his curiosity about everything from arts to um, weapons, war machines, and, and all kind of machinery and art at the same time, it's, it's really inspiring how he will look at everything in a different, uh, in a, with a different perspective. So I think it's very inspiring for researchers in general, for everyone. And uh, yeah. it's a beautiful book. Fantastic. Thank you so much. How about you, and um, I, Lorenzo? Yeah, and I'm going to, to use uh, the, the book for, uh, for Roberta also to, just uh, for a comment uh, because uh, we were uh, reading uh, uh, this book. Uh, it was really beautiful. But as a comment, I would say uh, for all of us uh, that the, still now the curiosity that we have, like uh, your resident asking for uh, what happens to intracranial pressure and so on. So find, uh, find questions, follow those questions and find mentors, teachers that can really help you to navigate uh, the questions. So for me, for example, was uh, when I was a resident uh, coming uh, to a different country and uh, finding wonderful mentors that actually helped me throughout uh, the career to uh, follow the questions and try to learn from that. So Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank you. Thank you for putting that out there. <laughs> and I'm glad that he recorded everything in his <laughs> notes so we could know what we were thinking about. So it's good to share what you are learning with others so we don't lose it. So yeah. we have to know what he did because he 
shared. He wrote it out, actually. He recorded it in his notes. So you mean you've seen Lorenzo's notes about his time first kind of coming in and, and going through the process of trying to find his, find his uh, get himself settled? Oh, so his ideas and shares. And also I'm also uh, putting together with the book because we are good. We know, I mean, Lorenzo always uh, teaches us to share information and to, like we are talking here, what we learned and then to work with different labs and different, um, different realities and to share so I'm putting together with the book because I'm, I'm glad that Da Vinci was able, he kept all like his notes and that's right. what we know so, so many centuries after what he did and how he, he, he used to, to think and we're still learning with him. Oh, absolutely. He, he recorded and, and shared. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's fantastic. And such, we can, I, I just think that's such a great message is, you know, take those leaps ask those questions and then, you know, find the mentors to help you explore them. That's, that's really every, every successful person I've ever interviewed has, has felt the same way. You know, they wouldn't be where they are without the mentors they had along the way. Well, uh, I will, I will recommend, um, and I already uh, in a prior episode recommended the TV show, Ted Lasso, which is fantastic. If you, if you haven't seen it, it's just a wonderful feel good, very funny show about an American football coach who gets invited over to England to coach a premier league soccer team and the just, just hilarity that ensues. Um, and it's very, very well done. And so the second season is now out and it's, unfortunately they don't dump it all as one. You can't watch them all at once. They come out once a week, but I think they're the third episode of the second season is about to come out and it's picks up right where the first season left off. Just feel good, funny, wonderful, wonderful show. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. All right. Um, Lorenzo and Roberta, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. That was fantastic. I got so much out of that episode. I hope you did to go to the website at Let us know what you thought. You can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw and we're at ACRAC podcast and you can join the Facebook group or follow us on Instagram as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And we really appreciate any donation that you make there. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jed Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already become patrons and made donations. It makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. Huge thanks as always to our ACRAC team. That's Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead. That's Ryan Okonski, our social media manager, and our production assistants, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli and Dr. April Liu. They are just fantastic and I'm so grateful to them. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAG podcast and Drs. Barra and Santiago. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.